Welcome to the Shortwave Report for March 30th, 2012. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. The Shortwave Report is a 30-minute review of news and opinion heard on a shortwave radio and the internet in Northern California. Listening to international broadcast at home is quite easy. You just need a shortwave radio with a schedule of English language broadcast or a computer with an internet connection. To help you with this, I'll announce times, frequencies, and website addresses at the conclusion of each series of stories. At the website for this show, that's www.outfarpress.com, you can find a schedule for dozens of international broadcasters in English. There you can also listen to the past five shortwave reports, find advice for listening to shortwave at home, and find internet links for global news sources. Please check it out and tell a friend. In today's edition, you'll hear reports from The Voice of Russia, Spanish National Radio, NHK World Radio Japan, Radio Havana Cuba, and Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle. We'll begin with The Voice of Russia. A year ago, there appeared to be a triumph of democracy in Libya with significant assistance from months of NATO bombings. Today, the country is seriously divided and many are accusing the West of abandonment. The Voice of Russia. Libya, which just a year ago was the West's poster child for the triumph of democracy, is quickly descending into chaos and stagnation, losing its democratic aspirations, with one of the country's top leaders accusing the West of abandonment. Libya's former prime minister and the currently de facto head of its foreign affairs, Mahmoud Jibril, said on Saturday during a summit in Brussels, it is a fatal mistake to abandon Libya. When the regime collapsed, the state collapsed as well. And when the regime collapsed, everyone disappeared. The EU's foreign affairs chief, Catherine Ashton, disagreed with Jabrell's assessment, saying development assistance is never fast enough and there's never any doubt we could do more and do it better. But the commitment is absolutely there. Jabril, however, warned that the Western lack of commitment led to Libya being in a political and security vacuum. And vacuums do not remain vacuums. Extremism might spread at any moment, adding, signs of that are already there. The former NDC leader noted that even when the West is doing something, it is a drop in the ocean and doesn't change the general public sentiment. He said, when you provide us with a different assistance, such as empowering women, we appreciate that. But it will not be felt because it will not touch the real nerve, so people will feel like they have been abandoned. In October, Jibril resigned as a prime minister of the National Transitional Council, an organization that was one of the driving forces behind the uprising which toppled the country's longtime ruler, Colonel Muammar Gaddafi. In an interview with the RT channel, Jibril suggested that Gaddafi was killed in a quick and brutal manner in order to keep some of the secrets he possessed from the public. Jibril said, there are too many parties who have real interests that Gaddafi doesn't talk, that he should be silenced forever. The former leader expressed regret that Gaddafi never faced trial, saying he would love to know who was behind the colonel's murder in October of last year. With the loss of its leader, there are fears that the oil-rich North African country is also rapidly losing its statehood and could soon be subjected to partition by conflicting clans and armed militias roaming through its towns. The NTC, which is the ruling body of the country, has so far failed to live up to its promise and move the country along the path of democratic transition. In fact, 
The council is deeply divided in itself, enjoys lackluster support of the population, and, as the latest incident with the desecration of British graves has demonstrated, cannot stop society from degenerating into a quagmire of hatred and tribal hostilities. The NTC has no authority over the armed brigades, particularly in the areas of Miserata and Zintan, and there is little prospect for it to gain control in the absence of a national army. The country also notably lacks transparency and government accountability, while numerous reports of human rights abuses, such as torture and ethnic violence, have left many Libyans yearning for the time before Gaddafi's bloody ouster. Alexei Podzorov of the Moscow-based Institute for Oriental Studies of the Russian Academy of Sciences told the Eurasia Review magazine that life has hardly gotten easier and freer after the revolution. The Russian expert pointed to poor living standards in Libya, where unemployment is on the rise and GDP is on the decline. More than 10,000 people are still in prison in Libya, and the crackdown of Gaddafi's supporters continues. Potsarab noted the unsuccessful attempts by the International Criminal Court to obtain unbiased information about what is going on in Libyan jailhouses. Another major concern of Western observers is the rising power of Islamists in Libya, as well as other protagonists of the Arab Spring, such as Egypt and Tunisia. Libyan Islamists and independents formed their own party in early March, electing a Muslim Brotherhood member as its leader. Muslim Brothers, Islamists and Independents held a conference where they stated that the main aim was to form a national party with an Islamic frame of reference. Although the party claims to adhere to democratic principles, as the events in Egypt have demonstrated, political triumphs have driven the Muslim Brotherhood to quickly abandon its friendly, cooperative and benign stance. That report was from the Voice of Russia. Russia is now heard from 6 p.m. to 11 at 15425-9800 and 9665 or through their website www.english.ruvr.ru. All the times I'm announcing are for Pacific Daylight Saving Time, so adjust them to your time zone. Next, Spanish National Radio. Kofi Annan announced that the Syrian government accepted the UN peace proposal for a ceasefire, but the Syrian opposition rejected it. Amnesty International reported a serious increase in the number of executions by governments last year. Israel has cut working relations with the United Nations Human Rights Council and has banned the organization from investigations within Israel. There was a two-day summit in South Korea on global nuclear security with some talk of reducing nuclear arsenals. Spanish National Radio. International Envoy Kofi Annan has announced that Syria has accepted a UN peace proposal calling for a ceasefire, but the Syrian opposition has dismissed the initiative, saying it will allow the government to continue its repression. The plan includes a ceasefire by Syrian forces and a daily two-hour halt to fighting to evacuate the injured. Despite the announcement, there has been no immediate end to the bloodshed. Fighting has spread into north Lebanon, where Syrian troops reportedly destroyed farm buildings and clashed with Syrian rebels who had taken refuge there. Kofi Annan said last night in China, Time is of the essence. This cannot be allowed to drag on indefinitely. And as I have told the parties on the ground, they cannot resist the transformational winds that are blowing. They have to accept that reforms have to come, change has to come, 
and that is the only way to deal with the situation. Syrian President Bashar al-Assad made a rare foray into the heartland of Syria's year-old uprising, visiting a rebel stronghold of Baba Amr in the city of Homs that his forces had overrun after weeks of shelling and gunfire, apparently to make the point that he can now tour the streets of the once bitterly fought-over district. Baba Amir was an emblem of opposition and rebel army defiance until it was reclaimed by government forces early this month after 26 days of heavy bombardment, which opposition activists said was totally indiscriminate. Western and Arab leaders are due to meet in Istanbul on April 1st to discuss a political transition in Syria, and the Arab League and Turkey were pressing various wings of the Syrian opposition to try to unite. Ahead of that meeting, the U.S. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton has said that Syrian opposition must present a clear commitment to include and to protect the rights of all Syrians. Amnesty International has revealed the number of executions carried out around the world jumped last year, largely due to a surge in the use of the death penalty in the Middle East. Amnesty said at least 676 people were executed in 20 countries. Only four countries carried out more executions than the United States. Salil Shetty is Secretary General of Amnesty International. The problem is that we have a handful of countries who have consistently been the have had the largest number of executions and that persists and some of them have actually increased at an alarming rate so I mean and China and Iran are sort of just simply off the charts they, they are the, the two biggest but then you have North Korea you have Saudi Arabia and unfortunately you have the United States in that group strangely enough Israel has cut working relations with the UN Human Rights Council, officials say, after it decided to investigate Jewish settlements in the West Bank. The Israeli Foreign Ministry has reportedly told its envoy in Geneva not to cooperate with the Council or with UN Human Rights Commissioner Navy Pillay. It will also prevent a UN team from entering Israel to assess the effects of settlements on Palestinian rights. We have more nuclear weapons than we need. As world leaders gather in the South Korean capital, Seoul, for a global nuclear security summit, the White House has said that China and the U.S. have agreed to coordinate their response to any potential provocation if North Korea goes ahead with a planned rocket launch in April. U.S. President Barack Obama and Chinese President Hu Jintao met on the margins of the summit. The White House said Mr. Hu indicated to Mr. Obama that he was taking the North Korean issue very seriously and was registering China's concern with the government in Pyongyang. Mr. Obama also vowed to pursue further nuclear arms cuts with Russia and urged China to follow suit. Acknowledging the United States has more warheads than necessary, Mr. Obama held out the prospect of new reductions in the U.S. arsenal and he sought to rally world leaders for additional concrete steps against the threat of nuclear terrorism. He pledged a new arms control push with incoming Russian President Vladimir Putin when they meet in May. We'll continue to seek discussions with Russia on a step we have never taken before, reducing not only our strategic nuclear warheads, but also tactical weapons and warheads in reserve. But any further reductions would face stiff election year opposition from Republicans in Congress who already accused President Obama of weakening America's nuclear deterrent. Mr. Obama said he would have more flexibility on the U.S. missile defense plans after November's election.
Those reports were from Spanish National Radio heard from 5 to 6 p.m. at 6055 and podcasting at www.rtve.es. Next, NHK World Radio Japan. It has been revealed that the radiation levels are extremely high in one of the reactors at the crippled Fukushima nuclear power plant. 53 of 54 nuclear reactors are now shut down in Japan. The Japanese Nuclear Safety Agency wants a reassessment of all earthquake fault lines off the coast of Japan. Fishermen north of Fukushima Prefecture are banned from catching sea bass as the radioactive contamination spreads. Fishermen are demanding research into the levels of radioactive contamination within the 20-kilometer zone where fishing has been banned since the accident. NHK World Radio Japan Tokyo Electric Power Company has detected extremely high levels of radiation inside one of the crippled reactors of the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant. TEPCO was able to place monitoring equipment directly inside the reactor for the first time since last year's accident. A dosimeter lowered into the containment vessel of the number 2 reactor registered 72.9 sieverts, or 72,900 millisieverts per hour at maximum, a level where a human is certain to die within about 7 minutes of exposure. The utility hopes to determine the state of the vessels as it moves to decommission the reactors. It says radiation levels increased as the dosimeter was lowered inside the reactor. This suggests the nuclear fuel melted down and collected at the bottom of the vessel. The company also learned the water level inside the vessel was only 60 centimeters compared to the original estimate of about 3 meters. TEPCO suspects the suppression chamber at the bottom of the vessel may have been destroyed. The findings are a setback for plans to scrap the reactor. The utility has to pinpoint and repair damaged parts inside the vessel and fill it with water before extracting the fuel. TEPCO says the development of devices that can withstand the extremely high levels of radiation is a pressing matter. Tokyo Electric Power Company has stopped the energy output from a nuclear reactor in Niigata Prefecture, central Japan, while it carries out regular inspections on Sunday. The reactor in Kashiwazaki Kariwa was the last active nuclear generator operated by TEPCO. Only one other reactor is currently operating in Japan. Japan has 54 nuclear reactors. TEPCO showed the media a central control center that monitors power in the Tokyo metropolitan area. Around midnight on Sunday, TEPCO stopped the reactor from supplying power. The last active reactor at Tomari in Hokkaido will suspend operations by early May. That means all of Japan's 54 nuclear reactors will stop if none are allowed to resume. Japan's Nuclear Safety Agency has asked the operators of six nuclear plants on the Sea of Japan coast to re-examine the active faults near the plants. The faults could shift simultaneously, triggering bigger earthquakes. The Nuclear Industrial and Safety Agency has requested the fault reassessments around the Mihama, Tsuruga and Monju plants in Fukui Prefecture, the Kashiwazaki Kariya plant in Niigata Prefecture, the Shika plant in Ishikawa Prefecture, and a plant in Shimane Prefecture. An expert panel at the agency has been studying the possibility of faults more than 5 kilometers apart becoming active at the same time. 
The phenomenon was considered unlikely until the massive earthquake last year made the faults in Japan more active. Results of the reassessments could force a revision of quake-resistant standards at the plants. They could also affect the outcome of the stress tests required for restarting the plants. Seismic engineering expert at the University of Tokyo, Tsuyoshi Takada, is a member of the agency's expert panel. He says after last year's earthquake, the government and power companies should give the public a full explanation of the risks around nuclear plants. He says doing so requires further reassessment of possible simultaneous fault activity. Radioactive contamination from the Fukushima nuclear accident is forcing fishermen in a neighboring prefecture to suspend catches of one of their fish. Catches of Japanese sea bass are the first marine products of Miyagi Prefecture, north of Fukushima, to be suspended due to the nuclear accident. Up to 360 becquerels of radioactive cesium were detected in sea bass hulls over the past two months off the coast of Miyagi. Radioactive cesium levels in fish exceeded the tighter restrictions that will begin next month. This will be 100 becquerels per kilogram. Miyagi Prefecture and fisheries cooperatives are considering asking fishers in the prefecture to voluntarily refrain from catching the fish. The operator of the disabled Fukushima nuclear power plant plans to begin monitoring radiation off the coast of the no entry zone by collecting samples of marine life. The announcement by Tokyo Electric Power Company on Wednesday is in response to requests by fishing cooperatives and researchers who have been calling for full fledged studies into the impact of radioactive contamination on marine life in the area. Fishing is banned within a 20 kilometer radius of the plant. TEPCO says it will collect fish and seashell samples from 20 locations within the zone. It will study what kind of radioactive materials the catch contains and the density of radiation. Similar studies have already been conducted beyond the 20 kilometer radius, but this is the first time that a survey is being carried out within the zone. Those reports were from NHK World Radio Japan, heard from 10 p.m. to 10 30 at 6110, or on the web anytime at www.3.nhk.or.jp. Next, Radio Havana, Cuba. A viewpoint on the U.S. government's continual listing of Cuba as a nation that sponsors terrorists. A retired U.S. Brigadier General has urged the United States to drop Cuba from the list. Radio Havana, Cuba. A small opening against the stubborn U.S. campaign to attack Cuba regarding terrorism recently occurred when a senior U.S. officer of armed forces admitted that there is no reason to continue including Havana in the absurd list designed by Washington about the state sponsors of terrorism. The retired Brigadier General John Adams urged this government to remove Cuba from the inventory of nations that harbor terrorism. Adams, who traveled to Havana and met with various people, found here something that many people around the world shared, but that full on deft here within the United States State Department. Its employees are most likely angry with this military specialist. Who is not a simple officer because he was on active service until five years ago and currently serves as an independent defense consultant. When publishing in a newspaper in the US Congress that his country observes 
an anachronistic policy toward Cuba. Adams also asserted that the persistent position of the U.S. to disqualify the neighboring nation on terrorism is capricious and politically motivated. The pronouncements of the high officer, who is said to have influence at the Pentagon, correspond to reality, which has been taken into account in Washington but not publicly acknowledged. Cuba is a victim country and not a promoter or accomplice of terrorism. 35 years ago, for instance, 33 people, including 57 Cubans, were killed when a bomb exploded aboard a Cuban civilian aircraft. Cuban top leaders, including the historic leader Fidel Castro, have been targets of assassination attempts by terrorists, mostly from the United States. These terrorists and their idol, the terrorist criminal Luis Posada Carriles, freely roam along the Florida Peninsula and are even encouraged by the leaders of the extreme right. Despite the strain of terrorist acts, such as the sabotage of La Cura ship, Cuba has not changed its commitment to fight against the horrific phenomenon of terrorism in all its forms and manifestations. As reiterated by the government and Cuban diplomats in international forums, Cuba rejects and condemns such acts, methods and practices, including state terrorism. Cuba denounces the apathetic effort of U.S. State Department officials to keep the island in the list of sponsors of terrorism every year. This is a response from Cuba that is always taken for granted by the U.S. government, the same that has been surprised now by the statements of a retired Brigadier John Adams. The former U.S. representative to NATO is on track to note that Cuba's presence on the list only damages the credibility of his own country. For Radio Havana, Cuba, Editorial Desk, I am Eduardo González. That viewpoint was from Radio Havana, Cuba, heard from 1 p.m. to 2 at 11760, and from 6 p.m. to midnight at either 6060, 6010, or 6000. Also streaming on the web from 6 p.m. to midnight at www.radiohc.cu, and now podcasting at World Radio Network, which is wrn.org. If you have questions or comments about the shortwave report or would like to make a donation for production cost of this unfunded program, I may be reached through the website or by writing to Dan Roberts at P.O. Box 1162, Willits, California, 95490. Donations are the only financial support I receive for producing this program. Please help if you can, like a listener in Northumberland, England, did this week. We will conclude with Radio Deutsche Welle. World Water Day was observed last week with a summit in France. Here is a report about the Declaration of the Right to Clean Water and how it is being implemented in several regions of the world. Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle. In 2010, the United Nations recognized access to clean drinking water and sanitation as a human right. It was even included in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Still, that didn't make it international law. Nevertheless, many countries have since recognized access to water as a fundamental right. Despite this, reality is far removed from what appears good on paper and more than two and a half billion people have no or insufficient access to drinking water and proper sanitation. Experts at the World Water Forum in Marseille last week were discussing what can and should be done to turn this human right into a reality. This report by Simone Schlindwein is presented by Chiponna Cimbelu.
Elizabeth Vargas is the director of CIPRA, an NGO in Bolivia. She is one of the experts who attended this year's World Water Forum in Marseille. She believes that theory and practice are often far apart when it comes to access to clean water in her country. I think it's important that the right to clean water is not only enshrined in our laws and constitution. Bolivia was one of the first countries to recognize access to water as a human right. But we have seen in Bolivia that it's not enough to have it only written in law. It should be accompanied by mechanisms that guarantee implementation. I think it's a very complex subject and it's hard to implement. This is exactly why we need such mechanisms. Her view is also shared by other activists like Tobias Schmitz from Both Ends. Both Ends is part of Butterfly Effect, an international network of organizations fighting for the right to water as a human right. Schmitz believes that there needs to be a rethink at the international political level. I think a number of key issues are, first of all, that a lot of development spending, whether it's from governments or from donors, goes into large-scale, capital-intensive, centralized infrastructure. And when, from a point of view of poverty alleviation, you need exactly the opposite. You need small-scale, decentralized, low-cost infrastructure. So at this point in time, we have still 80% of funding going into large-scale projects. According to Schmitz, clear financial commitments from both donors and national governments to solve the water problem are lacking. It is very unlikely that large amounts of money can be set aside, he says. You need a fixed allocation of water and sanitation finance, even if it is at a very low level, so that you know what your dependable commitment is from month to month. Also, Agreements that were signed with private water companies need to be checked to determine whether they are complying with access to water as a human right. If not, the agreements could be changed. And things also need to change on the ground. For example, schools in Ecatepec de Morelos in Mexico that have flash toilets but no running water to operate them need a sustainable solution. Fabiola Garduno coordinates water projects for NGO FANMEX in that part of Mexico. So composting toilet is a solution. These schools themselves have decided to close down their water-based sanitation systems because they don't work for them and they have opted to use these types of facilities. Rainwater is also being collected to provide clean drinking water. Educating locals is the important thing in all of these projects, Garduno says. We're working a lot with educational programs, training involving the parents, the teachers, and all of the school directors, including regional stakeholders, to support this way of going about and addressing water and sanitation problems with solutions that are gradually uptaked and upscale. What is happening in Ecatepec de Morelos could one day be the norm in Mexico. So we hope that this SWASH program in Mexico can be an example of what it is to have a beginning of a model that is aiming to involve the users in the decision-making process. Composting toilets could not only be used by people in developing countries, they could also be used in industrialized countries to save precious drinking water and make compost for home gardens. However, this is just one way to save water and a small step to help realize the right to water. 
Many more steps and programs and individual as well as state-level commitment will be needed to make the right to clean water a reality for more than 7 billion people across the world. Chipona Chimbalu, DW. That report was from Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle, which may be heard at a combined audio-video website, mediacenter.dw-world.de. All the times I've announced are for Pacific Daylight Saving Time. Please adjust them to your time zone. One of my goals in producing this show is to encourage people to listen to international broadcasts using a shortwave radio at home. However, if you use the internet, listening globally is also quite easy. See the links at this program's website. Every Friday morning, I post a new shortwave report at the website for this show. That's www.outfarpress.com. At my website, you can also listen to past shows, find internet links for international broadcasters, make a safe donation through PayPal and get advice for listening at home. The shortwave report is free to rebroadcast upon notification. The shortwave report is produced and distributed off the electrical grid in Northern California using solar panels. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. Thanks for listening.